Welcome to Lions Radio Network, where the show takes you on a roaring adventure with entertaining and stimulating topics focusing on entertainment, sports, business, world news, along with many other topics. Whatever your interests are, you will find them right here on Lions Radio Network. Jess Messen Broadcast is hosted by Jess Foll, a visual artist from Baltimore, Maryland. Jess invites those who've inspired her to recount their tales of becoming professional artists and creators. Through sharing memories and stories, Jess and her guests relive experiences, discuss new projects, and foster new ideas, all while making sense of this crazy pop culture world we live in. Tune in weekly for a variety of guests ranging from musicians, designers, artists, and entrepreneurs who are actively creating the world around us. And now, it's time for Jess Messin Broadcast with Jess Foll. Hey, everybody. Coming to you live from Baltimore, Maryland, from my art studio, right here on Lions Radio Network. Today we have a super special guest, and I'm like just so proud and honored for Andy to be here. So before we even get started, super thanks. Um, we have Andy Bernstein, executive director of Headcount um, and co-founder of Headcount, and he's. We're gonna like get into some politics election results here today. A little background on Andy. Andy helped found Headcount in 2004 and became its executive director in the spring of 2008. Um, under its stewardship, Headcount has registered nearly 500,000 voters and become a leader in harnessing the power of music to do live so to drive social change. Um, Andy was one of the founders of National Voter Registration Day and conceived the corresponding social media campaign that has involved over 500 musicians and celebrities and generated social media impressions. He also helped create Participation Row, Activism Village, where attendees have taken over 100,000 socially conscious actions while raising $1.5 million for various music industry charities, um, including over $500,000 generated from the auction of one guitar signed by the members of the Grateful Dead. Andy has produced nearly a dozen benefit concerts, and live music events, including 2012's The Bridge Session, which paired Headcount board member Bob Weir with the members of the National for the first time. Prior to creating Headcount, Andy was best known in the music community as the Farmer's Almanac and guide to, a guide to the band Fish that sold over 70,000 copies, which is totally insane. Um, he also worked in sports for more than a decade as a media editor for Streets and Sports Business Journal and a vice president of sports technology company Kangaroo TV. Um, so that's a bit on Andy and just uh, a smidge on Headcount. Headcount's mission is a nonpartisan organization that uses the power of music to register voters and promote participation in democracy. We reach young people and music fans where they already are at concerts and online to inform and empower. Our message is not about the party of which you support or where you land on an issue. It's more that you must speak at, speak out and be heard. Hey, oh my God. Hi, Andy. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, so a little bit about how Andy and I know each other. We know each other from back in the New York City days. Andy gave me a few filming opportunities through Headcount, which were super cool. It was more towards the end of my film career. And then, you know, we just kind of kept in touch 
over the years, not so much lately, but you know, like when I would see him at festivals and we would, I would always check in and just, um, before we even get started here, I remember Headcount when it was in its first year, um, and to see it grow and come to fruition is just so incredible. So kind of tell us a little background about the journey of, you know, music, Andy, and then how it kind of moved into this, like, political activism position for you. Sure. Well, yeah, we're... Uh... We're coming up on our 15-year anniversary, so it's been a an adventure to say the least. When we started, we never had any idea that it would go past a year. What what happened was, so um, I had, as you mentioned, I had written a book, uh, worked on a with some other people, a book, a series of books about fish called The Farmer's Almanac. So I knew I knew my way around the music world. I had a little bit of a kind of base of contacts. And I'd also grown up with Mark Brownstein of the Disco Biscuits. <laughs> so, you know, to the extent that I could uh, get into some shows for free and occasionally had uh, friends and family tickets at festivals, I was a little bit of a music scene insider, but not really much. I, I mean, I, I worked in sports. It was not my main gig, and I uh, pretty much was on a completely different life path. And it was late 2003 at the height of the Iraq war when kind of similar to today, I think people were just really amped up politically and really, you know, I was asking myself, what can I do? How can I make a difference? And I really had a moment where I literally asked that question to myself. I was like, I've got to stop complaining. I've got to do something. Mm-hmm. What can I do? And I had the idea for head count and I wrote a long email um, and uh, kind of writing out what I thought it would be. And I sent it to a couple people, one being Mark Brownstein. And Mark responded with two words, I'm in. And we decided to get it started. And we started Headcount. And we put together a board of directors that pretty quickly included Bob Weir. Uh, Al Schneer of Moe was very instrumental at the beginning. Um, and uh, John Schwartz, Pete Shapiro, Steph Scamardo. Rich Goodstone, these are some of our original board members, Nadia Pressure, uh, all kind of big people in the live music scene, essentially. Right. And we're like, all right, let's go register voters at concerts. And that was the idea. The concept was affiliate with bands, have street teams in major cities, and when the band goes on tour, then the street teams are there waiting for them and register voters at their concerts. And in a lot of ways, it hasn't changed. Uh, that that core idea is still what most people know Headcount to be. We've certainly grown, uh, but that first year, we were still pretty big. We did, I think, around 700 events that year. We were all over the country. We had you know, hundreds and hundreds of people involved. We went on the road with Fish and the Dead and Dave Matthews. And so year one, uh, we did public service announcements that we filmed at Bonnaroo and were on network television. So year one was actually a really big year, and we were all, we were all volunteers. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no office. We had no experience. We had no infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And we just built it, and we figured it out as we went. And it's funny to look. You know, there are some ways that we're very, very different now than we were then, but there's also a lot of ways that we're very similar. And what I, I sometimes tell people when they're starting a nonprofit or a company or something, I say, 
you're going to accomplish more in the first six months than you will in the next six years. Like, enjoy that time and go for it because there's something about when you're starting where just things happen quicker, they happen more organically, and they just seem to fall into place kind of, at least for us, kind of magically. So I look at what it takes that's how, now to that's do That's how it was thing. for me. Yeah, it seems to That's be a common experience that there's a, a sort of a big bang at the beginning of anything where just things happen at a pace that when you look back at it years later, you can't even understand. You're like, how did we get all that done with nothing? Um, and <laughs> I know. that was really our experience. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember I remember that first year, and it was like wild because – Headcount came out on the scene. It came out with a bang. It was like, we are here. We are attempting this. And for me, I mean, I was mildly involved with it to a degree and I was, I was super excited about it. And it was something that only progressed for me. It's like Baltimore outside. I got some sirens going. Um, It was only something for me that progressed. I legitimately looked forward to finding the headcount booth and stuff just to see what you guys were working on and what was coming up because it was always kind of definitely part of fostering new political ideas and agenda to engage the younger voter which is so important because one thing that the younger voters tend to say is oh we're we're underrepresented by our government you know we're not represented like they don't life or whatever and I I'm a believer that you're not going to get that representation until you vote that in right so you know you have to have the voters that are voting for the people they identify with in order to accomplish that and step one is finding those voters which you did just very very much so and we look at it today and we look at what happened with the election this week and we're really seeing that play out so the stats that came out late yesterday is that turnout by the youngest cohort, the young voters, jumped massively. Uh, in the previous election, it was 21%, and it had been pretty much hovering around that for as long as I've been doing this, since 2006, within one or two percentage points. But on Tuesday, it was 31%. And when you go from 21% to 31%, it's basically a, basically a 50% increase. Mm-hmm. In votes and turnout, and um, that's incredible. Like I never would have expected that. Like I thought, you know, maybe if we're lucky, we get to twenty five percent. Because in in all the years we've been doing this, it was just so consistently low, and we knew mm-hmm. it would be up this year. But I I don't think anybody would have predicted a fifty percent increase in turnout. And even more notably is the percentage of voters who were young increased. And what that means basically is that young voters surged more than any other age group. And, um, and that, that is really the critical thing. You know, if everybody came out in big ways and young people just kept pace with everybody else, it would be a victory. But for young mm-hmm. people to be outpacing the other age groups, that's when elected officials start to notice and start to cater their messaging and their policies more to the needs of young people and whether it's student loans or affordable housing or, you know, the things that really, really affect young voters, when young voters turn out, uh, there's accountability there and there's elected officials want to keep those votes coming in and coming in on their side. Well, yeah, essentially, you know, 
you know, one hand washes the other, you know, like if these officials want to get reelected into office and they see that there is, you know, voters to gain in a sect of which they're not really catering to. It's like, oh, I can get these young voters by saying, by adding, you know, this to my agenda in, in benefit of them, and I can benefit from it as well at the votes. I mean, I hate to put it as base as that, but that's a big part of it. So, you know, in order to get people on your side, it's like, oh, there's, you know, there's an asset for me to be paying attention to the this generation, you know, and to be providing for them. And, you know, if that's kind of, for me, how I digest that, is that correct? Exactly. And that's how democracy is supposed to work, that, uh, you you know, elected officials are supposed to listen to their constituents and try to seek out votes by giving constituents what they want. And the more young people vote, the more that dynamic happens in terms of issues that relate to young people. I mean, it's no secret that one of the reasons that Medicare and Social Security and issues that affect older people are so important politically is because older people vote. And the only way young people will have equal footing is if they vote as well. And it's just really a very simple kind of democratic idea. Yeah. So can you break down for us, I mean, because obviously, I mean, all I do is glue stuff to other stuff and make doodles. So please explain to me in the easiest way to understand the results of what happened in the, you know, in the midterms on Tuesday. So sure. the Democrats well, really took over the House. Exactly. The Democrats taking over the House and Republicans making gains in, in the Senate. So it was sort of a victory lap. Well, it was a victory lap for America because voter turnout was so high. Um, Democracy won on Tuesday. But I think both parties can legitimately point to real victories. And So what does it all mean? Well, one of the things it means from a political standpoint is that the Democrats are now in charge of the committees in the House of Representatives. And it means that they run investigations. They decide what bills get voted on. So there's a lot of power in having the majority in the House, and you will probably see a very different type of investigation um, or series of investigations of the Trump White House that wasn't going to happen with Republicans in control. You probably aren't going to see a lot of legislation get passed uh, because it's supposed to go through the Senate and the White House, but you're going to see a – you know, you're going to see a lot of investigations, and some view that as a good thing, some view that as a not good thing, but uh, it's an inevitable thing. Um, so does that mean, like, the, when you know, when legislation you know gets brought up, it'll go through a more rigorous like questioning through the House of whether or not this should even be a viable thing to pass? Is that and then well, like in, the, in terms of what I'm talking about is not legislation. I'm talking about investigations. So, okay. like, for the last two years, the investigation, the, the, the congressional probes of the Russia um, situation was run by Republicans. Now it's going to be run in the House by Democrats. And you're mm-hmm. probably going to see various committees look into things uh, from the Trump White House. And some would say with a political agenda, some would say with less of a political agenda. You know, it, it all depends on what your perspective is. From a legislation standpoint, what it means is that. Democrats can decide what gets voted on, 
before it was Republicans. Now, that's only true in the House. It's not true in the Senate. So in mm-hmm. a perfect world, what you'd see is compromise. You'd see everybody recognizing the only way to get anything done is to work together. Whether that will happen or not, I don't know. Um, now, with more, with more senators on the Republican side, it means that if there is another Supreme Court opening, then it's even more likely for a confirmation on the Republican side because, you know, before if they had pulled even two Republican senators to not support Kavanaugh, he wouldn't have been confirmed. Now they would need to get uh, four or five. Okay. So, um, and you'll see uh, now the way the Senate works is that um, you need 60 votes to bring something to the floor uh, for a piece of legislation. So as long as um, it's under that threshold, there is still some bipartisan input. Um, and it looks like we'll end up with either 54 or 55 um, Republicans in the Senate. So that's the outcome of Tuesday. I think that both sides legitimately can point to victory. I mean, the, the, the Republicans <clears throat> gained seats in the Senate, and the Democrats took the House. And uh, it's nice when everybody wins, you know? That's a good thing. Well, yeah, and I mean, ultimately, like, that's that's kind of like utopia, right? When you have – when you can have, you know, half of one – thought sector, you know, thought process and idea represented and half the other. And then we come together and we mitigate and we like, you know, try to, you know, find the happy medium for everyone. But I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that that hasn't been the agenda, especially in the past two years. No, and really going back um, a lot of years, uh, we've just, uh, you know, during the, uh, during the Obama years, less legislation got done than any years before because there was nobody was able to find a way to compromise. Right. And uh, that's been the lost art. And the founders of the Constitution created a system of checks and balances that were supposed to lead to compromise. It was supposed to kind of force compromise because you didn't have just one party or one entity in charge. But – that's something that's been lost, and I think that's probably turned off a lot of young people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we definitely are in a state in America where we don't get a whole lot done at the federal government level. And in some ways that's by design because there are a lot of people who want to see the federal government be a less active player. Um, and uh, that's a big part of the political agenda, certainly on the right. For there to be less government and particularly less federal government, so there isn't necessarily an incentive to change the uh, the dynamic um, because sometimes getting less done is 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 a win for right. those who want to see there be less government. Totally, I com- I'm completely on the same page with you right now. I'm fully understanding. Thank you so much. Okay, so what do we do now? We have two years left of the Trump administration, possibly six, Um, you know, and a concern for me is because, I mean, I'm super duper vocal about it. I'm completely all about the equality when it comes to race, gender, sexuality. I don't like guns. I'm not down with guns. Guns scare the shit out of me, for lack of better words. And I just, you know, it's a lot of stuff that's going on is, in a sense, 
I'm not one to really scare or be fearful easily, but a lot of this does legitimately scare me in the sense that I see how my peers are being treated. I see how we're having very little reform, but we're having just, if not more, devastation. So what do we do going forward? What can I do? I'm not really a big protester. I, I'm actually kind of freaked out by it, but like, what can I do? What can we do to help whatever it is that our, our beliefs are other than voting? Like, what else can I do? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, an important part of Head Count's mission is civic participation. And voting is really just the first step. Voting is something you do once a year or twice a year, but you can be an active citizen every day. And, you know, there are so many ways to do it, and it starts with identifying a cause or a community that you want to contribute to. Uh, one of the things that with Headcount that we're really proud of is just the kind of the community that we foster. We have thousands of volunteers. We invite anybody to sign up at headcount.org. Uh, eventually you'll start getting emails about live music events in your home city, and you can register other people to vote and bring other people into democracy. So that's the on-ramp we offer for getting more involved and being a more active citizen. But there are so many organizations, grassroots organizations, that have different ways to get involved. And a strong sense of community and active citizenry is a very powerful force. And whether you are getting involved in your, really in anything in your own community, when people are doing that in large ways, things change. And, you know, knowing what your friends are involved with, seeing what people are posting on social media and seeing what intrigues you, there's just so many things that you can do at the grassroots level. And think about it, in a world where if everybody has a cause and everybody is active, then the grassroots wins, then, then the, the ideals and values that people are fighting for are going to be a very powerful force. If we have a world where everybody is passive, where everybody just sort of doesn't really do very much, well, then government has free reign. So mm-hmm. there's just so many different ways to get involved. And I, I think just like, I think art also plays an important role here. Um, I, when you think about the role that art has played in revitalizing cities, let's just take that as an example for a second. The revitalization mm-hmm. of cities in America is an important, almost untold story of the last 20 years. Uh, young people have moved back to cities. Uh, cities have become a, a, a power center for politics. They've become a power center economically. And art has been a driving force in that. So I think that just, you know, by creating art and sharing art and being active, being a contributor as opposed to a consumer um, really, really does make a difference. And it makes a difference in our culture as a country. And it ultimately makes, uh, there's a lot of domino effects. So when you, when you share with yourself and you're more of a giver than a taker, you are making a difference and where this country goes. There's no question. Well, I, you know, that's sweet of you to say, because I found myself, I think this year is really the first year where I've ever made art that's political. And, you know, I'm very suggestive, very innuendo with my work. But, you know, I had a situation earlier this year where, you know, we had a false, um, 
a false mass shooting downtown and I happened to be right in the center of it and it was terrifying. And my thought process really was, oh my gosh, that was fake. Imagine if that was real. And I mean, I legit was messed up by the fact that it was a false alarm for a few weeks. I was like, just the whole digestion of that, the reality of that for me was a lot to really endure. And that was the first time that I really started making like, you know, always said that I would never, I would, I wouldn't even give, you know, Donald Trump the flattery of ever painting him or doing anything. But I found myself like really getting into, you know, like gun art and, you know, finding my message with that. I was, you know, making pastels of super soakers and kind of creating like the mental timeline of when you're introduced to weaponry and all that good stuff. And even recently with this new stuff I'm making, I've really gotten into suggestive LGBTQ stuff. You know, I'm painting rainbow bright and I'm painting a troll doll with rainbow hair and I'm trying to create work that is supportive, but also digestible to like the average person that may not be um, necessarily like looking for that message. Like I'm trying to make art where you're receiving the message and it's kind of like I want to get it in there without you being able to deny it um, from on site. So I appreciate you saying that because it's taken a little um, time for me to grow into the idea that I've, I have this platform and people pay attention to what I say or how I feel about stuff. So, you know, um, we, and, and more to that, we have a, what you were saying as far as like grassroots movement. We have obviously a terrible crime rate here in Baltimore, and we have a situation here, or we actually have a grassroots group that's done called Ceasefire, and they do weekends where they ask you to not kill anybody. And kind of the way they go about it doesn't make sense to me, but I want to get involved with this, and I don't necessarily think that this is the grassroots group for me, I'm more of a get in there and try to like, do, like, okay, this is going to sound really messed up, right? But I, this is truly how I feel. Like we have a problem with having our African-American culture here in Baltimore to be heard, to be taken seriously, and to for the fact that their neighborhoods are completely underfunded, ill-maintained, and in fact, in my opinion, even – kind of fueled to not succeed like there's a there's a supply and demand for drug culture here um our pol our, our government is involved with that so we have this huge grassroots movement that's obviously through the neighborhoods trying to combat this whole thing this epidemic that's going on here for me, I'd like to get involved politically because I'm a white female. So if my voice can be heard in regards to this issue and maybe, you know, does this make sense? I feel like I'm rambling, but I, like, I feel like I like bring attention to it and it might be able to be done in a different way. I don't know. Well, certainly allies and coalitions are very important in any movements. And it's unfortunate that sometimes – but people often point to Parkland as an example of this, is that when white suburban kids started speaking out, the, um, suddenly it got press attention. 
and I credit the Parkland kids with a lot of great things. And one of the things they did really well was rather than just keeping that attention for themselves, they did a lot of work to lift up support by inner city activists and um, young people of color. So I think they, they, they had a really good ear for that, especially in terms of who they spoke with on their tours and their events and things like that. So we, you know, we all have to work together to create change. And, um, but you also want to avoid what they call the white savior complex as well. And exactly. You see that a lot. Um, right. And, the, you know, there, there's no one right answer on any of these things. But the, 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 the truism that you can always get back to is that a more active electorate is going to produce change and a more passive electorate is going to leave the people in power having more power. And okay. uh, whether that's Democrats or Republicans, it's just, you know, if there's a core belief here is that, we always win when people are engaged politically and informed, and that's regardless of how they vote. And I really believe that. I really, uh, I think that America did win on Tuesday because for the first time really ever that I remember, you truly had people on both sides of the ideological spectrum really, really engaged, and it was proven statistically. Everybody was amped up. And... Um, and that's just really yeah. I mean, I just thing. I just and felt I think, that too. It was cool. Yeah, it was a really cool election and, to be a part of. I was I had a lot of fun voting in this one for sure. I know that might it, sound like it, arbitrary, it, but it really was. <laughs> and it's amazing to see my social media feed is just filled with everybody excited about voting. And you know, headcounts for doing this 15 years, and I can assure you that was not always the case. And um, you know, and I'm sure that is true. My my I live in the liberal bubble, I'll admit, and most of my social media feed is people who have voted for Democrats, but I, I am sure that people who have an opposite bubble that they're in, uh, their social media feed is also filled up, and, and, um, and America's paying attention, and that's just a really positive thing, and it is, it is how the, the system is supposed to work. You know, one, one last point. The, there are some who thought that sort of Donald Trump got lucky two years ago, and I think it's really proven that that's not the case. The, Donald Trump is a very real political phenomenon who has very, very real and deep support. And if you look at the Florida governor's race and Senate, Senate race in a state where he has more than 50 percent approval rating, uh, Republicans came in with more votes, at least as of now. So this is real. You know, the, we have a very divided country. Um, but we have passionate people on both sides and people who are informed on the issues and are making a real choice. And, um, you know, we have to recognize that there is there are, there are a lot of different viewpoints in this country. And if we want our viewpoint to win, then we've got to be really active and get our friends engaged and get everybody out to vote because, not, neither side has conceded. Neither side is saying, okay, you can have this. Uh, well, nobody's saying it's your country. It's our country. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's really reflective in even just, like, the level of, like, how close to 50-50 we were in so many of the races. Like, you know, apparent just mathematically that we are – pretty equally divided right now in the sense of, you know, thought process and whatever. So whatever side you're leaning towards, you have your engagement will help, 
your opinion prevail? Like at this point, we aren't at a place where we're entirely blue or we're entirely red, you know? So if you're on the edge of being like, oh, I feel like I should be involved, but what a pain or it doesn't matter. It does matter. And I think, you know, this is such an interesting time to be able to be politically active. One of the things that I was so excited about with this election was that, you know, the turnout and the engagement for a midterm, which is so rare, you know, that people were actually turning out like they were turning out for a presidential election was so exciting to see. Because really, at the end of the day, the liberty to vote is quite the gift, you know, and to take that lightly is, you know, very unfortunate. It took me a little time and a little growing up. I mean, I'm 34 now. I, you know, my party days are a little behind me. So now things, I'm starting to on things that I don't necessarily like certain behaviors or I don't like certain activities and I, I'd wish it to be different. So, you know, I'm really actually having a very good time getting super politically involved and learning about this. So for anyone who's listening who may not think it's fun or entertaining, it is. Like, it's actually really interesting. So, Andy, before we split, so we have, you can visit Headcount um, at headcount.org to learn about Headcount and all that they do and how you can get involved with that. And that's basically like your new, like, rock or rock the vote sort of thing, and it's it's really cool, and you can see them all summer long and throughout, you know, really the year, different gigs and interact with them, and they have a lot of cool people on the road. Do you have maybe like two or three other um, organizations that you personally enjoy that you can suggest to us? Well, we have been very involved with the March for Our Lives movement. We don't get involved in the uh, the gun. Advocacy aspect, we're more involved in the democracy aspect in March for Our Lives, but I think the the Parkland students have had enormous impact. And, um, you know, we um, we do, Kid Count does something called Participation Row, where we run action, social action villages and festivals and tours. And there are a lot of great organizations we've come to know through that. Oxfam is one uh, that advocates against poverty around the world. We, um, uh, we work with Amnesty International, a uh, human rights organization, and um, <clears throat> and then kind of in the music scene, some of our sort of brothers and sisters or Conscious Alliance, which is a um, they do food drives with a real focus on supporting Native Americans. Uh, we work with Rock the Earth, which is now a part of League of Conservation Voters. So these are some of our brothers, sisters, and cousins that we work alongside with, and they're all terrific organizations to be involved with. All right. Thank you so much, Andy. We're going to wrap up here. I'm losing you here, but I guess it's good timing if we're wrapping up. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, please do visit headcount.org, and it's, it's a pleasure to catch up with you, Jess, and I'm glad to hear you're doing well, and we appreciate uh, you giving some love to Headcount. Here at Jess Messen Broadcast. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm losing you here, but thanks so much, and uh, let's do it again. Bye.